So we're moving out of leases and now we're talking about selling real property. Uh, there are three main steps to selling real property. We've got the purchase contract, we've got closing, and then we've got title protection. This episode, we're going to be talking about the purchase contract. And there are several parts of the purchase contract that we need to focus on. We're going to focus on the statute of frauds, marketable title, and equitable conversion, and the duty to disclose. So lots to cover today, lots of information. Uh I'm going to try and be pretty quick about it uh, just because there's a lot to cover and I have a lot more that I want to cover in future episodes. So purchase contract. Uh, Well, there are three main things that needs to be, uh, sorry, there's several things that needs to be involved in the purchase contract. As you know, a purchase contract, well, it's a contract. And what's it a contract for? To purchase property. Uh, As mentioned, the purchase contract needs to be done underneath the statute of frauds. To meet the statute of frauds, uh, there are three essential elements. Uh, the It needs to be in writing, and that writing must list out essential terms, and it needs to be signed by the party against whom enforcement is sought. So our case here, Hickey v. Green, just kind of outlines this. Uh, what are the essential terms? Well, those essential terms are the parties, the price, and a description of the property. A writing can be both formal and informal, as far as the second element goes. Uh, That means it could be written down on a napkin over lunch, and that would count as a sufficient writing, as long as it has those essential terms, and it is signed by the party against whom enforcement is sought. Even if there is no statute of frauds, there are two ways that a contract can still be enforced. We talked about this all in contracts last semester, but this is going to be equitable estoppel, and that's if you have a reasonable reliance. Somebody moves because of the contract, that kind of thing. Or if there's part performance, and that's going to be, I already started building on this property because I thought we had this agreement. So, that's statute of frauds. Second part is marketable title. This is important because when you are purchasing property, you are not purchasing a home or the property. You're purchasing title to that property. And so you need that title to be marketable. A clean title, a marketable title, is going to be more valuable to buyers than a title that is not clean or not marketable. So, we've got lots of information here. A person, first, is for a person to sell a property, they need to be authorized to sell that property. And that's really going to decide whether or not this is marketable. If they are not authorized to sell that property, the title is not marketable. So, there are three main ways that a title is not marketable. First, the seller is trying to sell more interest than what they have. Uh, so this, and a good example of this is if they are selling a fee simple to a property, but they only possess a life estate. Well, if you have a life estate, you can't sell a fee simple because a fee simple is more than a life estate. Uh, second is if the title is subject to an encumbrance. We'll talk about encumbrances later. And uh, this is an impediment on a property. Or third, if there is reasonable doubt about either the interest or the encumbrance. So number three is just relating number one and two, and if there's any doubt between those two.
when we enter into a contract, I've mentioned this previously, I just want to emphasize it, you're not purchasing the land, you're purchasing the title. And the idea of this principle is that you just want to make sure that you, your property is free from any barriers that might make it subject to litigation. So the whole point, you just want to stay out of court, and so you want it to be marketable. So as far as encumbrances go, uh, when it comes to marketable title, uh, there are two main types of encumbrances. We've got private and public. As far as the private encumbrances go, these are just uh, the presence of a private encumbrance is going to make a title unmarketable, unmarketable unless the encumbrance is mentioned in the purchase agreement. Uh, and what that's going to say is something along the lines of, subject to all restrictions and easements of record that do not significantly affect the use or value of property. However, it is a violation of a private encumbrance. Sorry, a violation of a private encumbrance renders the title unmarketable. As far as the public encumbrances go, um, public encumbrances include zoning ordinances. Uh, those do not make the title un unmarketable. Uh, all land is still subject to public re regulation, but if a public regulation has, sorry, if the encumbrance, if the property is in violation of a public encumbrance, then that renders it unmarketable. So there is a difference between the condition and the value of the property and the zoning ordinances. All property is subject to zoning ordinances. That's an encumbrance, but it doesn't make it unmarketable. The condition of that property on that ordinance, if it's in violation of that ordinance, does make it unmarketable. The third thing that we need to talk about now is equitable conversion. We've got one case here. Ultimately, what it is is who's reliable for any damages that might happen in between the purchase contract and closing. This is called the executory period. So it's really a question of who owns what, who owns the property, and who owns the purchase price. It's kind of a weird rule, but the buyer is the equitable owner, which means that they own the real property and they will bear the risk of any loss or damage that happens in, in this executory period. The seller is the legal owner who owns the purchase price. So this is the default rule unless the contract says otherwise. So ultimately you're going to want to say otherwise in your contract because you may have things flip-flopped when you don't want things to be flip-flopped. And this is going to remain true even if one or both parties die during this period. So say the buyer dies, well then the kid or the heir of the buyer is still going to own the real property and bear the risk of that loss. If the seller dies, well then their kid or heir is still going to be entitled to the purchase price. So those are just things to note. Our final thing to talk about relating to the purchase contract is that there is a duty to disclose. So you need to disclose certain things when you purchase a contract. The seller needs to tell the buyer of certain situations. 
Uh, traditionally, a buyer, uh, sorry, a seller did not have to tell the buyer of any situations. But this has long since expired. Uh, now, sellers are required to disclose any known material defects that affect the value of the property or any defects that are not readily discoverable by the buyer. So how do we define material and readily discoverable? We've got two cases here. Uh, Strombowski versus Ockley. This is the haunted house case. You may have heard about it. Kylie, my wife, knew about it before I even read these cases. So ultimately, there was a haunted house. The seller did not tell the buyer about the house being haunted, even though the seller had publicized through several articles that the house was haunted. And it goes, uh, the ghosts were friendly, according to the seller. But simply, the rule states that the seller must disclose any known material defects that affect the value of the property or any defects that are not really discoverable. The policy arguments that justify disclosure is, first, you want to ensure the quality of the property. You want to protect buyers from predatory business. You want the seller uh, who is in the best position to be aware of those defects and share those defects. And then you want to encourage the marketability of the property. When it comes to Strawn versus Kanusu, uh, the question that was presented in this case is whether the seller needed to disclose off-site conditions that may materially affect the value of the property. And this is a significant question because there are so many factors off-site that it could affect the value and enjoyment of the property. This could include noise, shaking, any nuisance that arises uh, from nearby trains, airports, uh, dumpsters, etc. And the whole reason to disclose this, these off-site conditions is because there's an unequal bargaining power between a professional seller and a residential buyer. And we want to increase trust in the market between residential sellers and buyers. And if you disclose those things, it increases those things or makes those things better. It is also important to note that a buyer is under no obligation to disclose something to the seller that may increase the value of the property. Okay. So let's go ahead and summarize everything. Uh, we've ta been talking about the purchase contract, and the purchase contract needs to meet the statute of frauds, meaning it's written down, uh, that says the essential terms and the signed by the party against whom enforcement is sought. Even if it's not written down, you can still use equitable estoppel or part performance to get performance. As far as marketability of a title goes, uh, you want the title to be marketable. You're purchasing the title, not the land. And there are three th three ways to make the title not marketable. Uh, the first is if the seller is attempting to sell more interest than they have. And the title is subject to an encumbrance or any doubt about one of those two. As far as encumbrances go, you have private encumbrances and public encumbrances. Private encumbrances automatically makes the title unmarketable unless if the uh, buyer agrees to the encumbrance. 
As far as public encumbrances go, the existence of an encumbrance does not make it unmarketable, but a violation of a public encumbrance does make it unmarketable. When it comes to equitable conversion, uh, the buyer gets the is the equitable owner and the seller is the legal owner. And when it comes to duty to disclose, uh, the sellers must disclose if there are any conditions that are created by the seller, if there's any um, professionals who need to disclose off-site conditions that affect the property, or if there are jurisdictions that pass statutes about what needs to be disclosed on the property, and these are called stigma statutes. And then finally, the buyer does not need to disclose anything to the seller. Lots of information, but that is the purchase contract. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro. And you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials. And the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice. And with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.